Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Now, your host, Jared Serbu. Glad you're with us this week for a special edition of On DoD. On the program this time, we're going to hear from the personnel chiefs of all the military sea services, the Navy, the Marine Corps, and the Coast Guard. The occasion for this was the Navy League's annual Sea Air Space Conference in National Harbor, Maryland. The Navy League asked me to moderate a panel featuring the personnel chiefs as they brought us up to speed on their priorities and their challenges. What you'll hear today is a condensed version of that discussion, edited mostly for length. So, without further ado, on to the panel. Well, good afternoon, everybody. We are, uh, we're going to go ahead and get started, even though people are still filing in. That's fine. Um, thanks for coming to the Manpower panel. Uh, my name is Jared Serbu. I'm uh, deputy editor at Federal News Radio. I'll be the moderator today. Um, I'm not going to go through long bios for, for each of our esteemed panelists here. If, if you are in this room, you know who they are, or else you're in the wrong room. Um, j just to set the context for this a little bit, um, when, uh, when Navy League asked me to do this, I thought, I thought back to some of the, the good long conversations we had, I'm, I'm going to say circa 2014 with, um, with CNP at the time, Admiral Moran, thank you. Um, and that was right around the time when this, this thing that we now call Sailor 2025 was really getting rolling. And, and his, his whole raison d'etre for, for doing everything that was being laid in place at that time was kind of, the economy's not so great right now, so we've got a very fertile recruiting environment, and we don't have a whole lot to worry about. But these things move in cycles. And a few years down the road, we're going to be challenged to get the caliber of people that we need. And sure enough, I think that's where we are today. Um, all, all of the sea services, all of the military services really describe themselves as being in, in what they call a war for talent. So we're going to hear from all of our sea service personnel chiefs today on, on exactly some of the concrete steps that they're taking to win that battle. Um, as far as format here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my reporter hat off and mostly play traffic cop. That's my intention. Um, I have promised each of our panelists that historically here at Sea Airspace, this is one of the best panels in terms of audience participation because you all live in, work in, or have worked in the military personnel system, um, and you're going to ask much better questions than I ever will. Just very briefly, um, just real quick introductions. Vice Admiral Robert Burke is the Deputy Chief of Naval Operations, the N1, Deputy Chief for Manpower, Personnel Training and Education. Lieutenant General Michael Rocco is the Marine Corps Deputy Commandant for Manpower and Reserve Affairs. Rear Admiral William Kelly is the Coast Guard's Assistant Commandant for Human Resources. And Dr. Shashi Kumar, the Deputy Associate Administrator and National Coordinator of Maritime and Education and Training at MARA, the uh, U.S. Maritime Administration. So we'll go down one by one. Each of our panelists is going to give us some brief opening remarks, and then after that, I. I I may not be able to help myself. I may ask a couple follow-up questions, but again, I'd like to throw it open to you as early as possible. So, Admiral Burke, you want to start us off, please? Sure. Thanks, Jared. I appreciate it. Good to see everyone out here this afternoon. Uh, a lot of things going on in uh, our Navy today, and I'm, I'm excited to have the opportunity to, to tell you just a little bit about what there is. Um, I've never been able to do this in less than four hours. But uh, Jared asked me to keep it to uh, just a few minutes here, so I'll, I'll save a lot of this for uh, the questions. But um, as you know, we are, uh, are growing our Navy into the Navy that the nation needs, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 350-plus uh, ships. 
Um, what's in the, in the budget today is uh, by the end of the fiscal year's defense plan, we'll be in the neighborhood of 326 ships as compared to today's uh, just over 280, 282 ships. That means we'll be adding just over 21,000 people in, a, in about five years. Uh, that's a significant uh, manpower addition in a very short amount of time for a Navy that's been relatively uh, flat or declining for the last really 20 plus years. So we spent the, the, the latter part of, uh, you know, really last year uh, turning the aircraft carrier, if you will, and, and changing our policies to uh, a, uh, a stable or uh, slightly downsizing Navy to uh, policies that, that reflect a growing Navy and uh, really sort of also shoring up some uh, gaps at sea that accumulated from years of, uh, of uh, working with uh, underfunding, uh, resource uh, 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 short accounts, uh, and, and shoring up those gaps at sea. Uh, and, and we continue to do that today. Uh, and, we, and we put some corrective measures in place with our budget processes and things going forward to make sure that we don't find ourselves in a similar situation uh, going forward. Uh, so we're on a, a very uh, good trajectory with respect to adding that manpower, additional recruiters, things of that nature. And, and as Jared mentioned, we, we were also sensitive to the climate uh, changing with uh, the challenge for uh, getting the talent to, to man that Navy uh, under Admiral Moran. I, I worked for him then uh, as the N-13. You know, we, we designed the program called Sailor 2025, which was uh, a group of initiatives. Today it's about 45 or so initiatives aimed at providing our sailors with the transparency, the choices, the flexibility that they, that they deserve uh, and, and really demand uh, from any job, and uh, we're, we're putting those, those types of policies in place. But in order to give those programs the sustainability they need for the long haul, we, we knew that we needed to change the way that we fundamentally uh, did business. So we also, at the same time, uh, set about a, a wholesale transformation of the way we, we did business. So we, we started to look at each of our processes. We started with our processes first, a top-down review. I took a look at our relatively long and complex processes, streamlined them, took a look at things that dated back to the, you know, the 1793 when the United States Navy was formed and said, hey, that one was time for a review, let's, let's get rid of that, and uh, took 54-step processes down to about six, nine-month processes down to weeks, we also realigned our, our organizations along business lines. We're not changing the names of the commands or anything, but the way we think and manage the way we do business in the, in the people world uh, to, to do things smarter, faster, better from an organizational point of view, from a money point of view, but also from a customer service point of view. We took it upon ourselves that we were going to become a customer service organization for our sailors and their families. And after those organizational and process changes were done, then we set about putting some automation, some information technology towards that. And 
uh, uh, last August we unveiled a single integrated um, commercial off-the-shelf uh, information technology. It's integrated between both the active and the reserve component, which is something the Navy's never had, and it's on its second field test. And uh, we're looking at, you know, probably uh, later this year, uh, rolling out mobile handheld device uh, personnel pay and uh, eventually career management services that uh, mirror uh, much like what you would have with today's commercial banking institutions, insurance companies, and things like that. And by 2019, 2020, uh, we'll have that in place uh, across the entire enterprise for all of our sailors. And I think uh, give, give our sailors what they've been uh, expecting in terms of service for, for quite a while. So we're very excited about getting that in place. A lot of what we've been doing in Sailor 2025 has, has had a, a significant uh, positive impact on enlisted retention. We haven't had the flexibility to do a lot of the same things in the officer world because our officer policies are constrained to a large extent by law, the Defense Officer Personnel Management Act. We've been nibbling at the edges with individual proposals. Um, this year, I think we got uh, a sympathetic year from um, the Senate. Uh, we're about to talk to the, um, the, the House uh, in, in the coming days uh, about similar concerns. There's, there's growing willingness to, to listen, to make uh, adjustments, to talk about similar flexibilities for our officer corps as we look to the types of people we're going to need to man that fleet, to fight the battle concepts that we're going to need to fight in the future to have the workforce with the talent and the skills that we're going to need, we're going to have to do business differently. We may not be able to build all those skills from the ground up the way we do today. It may not be cost effective. It may not be smart to do it that way. We're going to have to have other ways of doing it. Not to say that we would do all of our people skills that way, but we have to have just some ability to supplement uh, uh, with other methods. So we're looking at some uh, uh, proposals to do things a little bit differently, and I look forward to talking uh, with you about those uh, maybe through the question and answer. But, Jared, thanks for the opportunity, and, and I look forward to your questions. All right. Thanks, Admiral. That is Vice Admiral Robert Burke, the Chief of Naval Personnel. Quick break, and when we come back, opening thoughts from our panel from Lieutenant General Michael Rocco, the Deputy Commandant of the Marine Corps for Manpower and Reserve Affairs, and Rear Admiral William Kelly, the Assistant Commandant of the Coast Guard for Human Resources. This is on DoD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Serbiv. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. And getting back to our conversation with the personnel chiefs from each of the sea services. Again, this is from a panel moderated by me at the Navy League's Sea Air Space Conference. Next up, Lieutenant General Michael Rocco, the Deputy Commandant of the Marine Corps for Manpower and Reserve Affairs. Good afternoon, Jared. Thank you. And uh, thank you, everybody. It's uh, good to look out in the audience and see some old friends and some old mentors that... Uh, that I look up to. It's great to see some of the young midshipmen in the back there also. You've got a, uh, a long career and uh, a great career in front of you. So, But for the rest of you, what I'm going to do is I have some prepared remarks I'll cover for you from the Marine Corps perspective. It'll hit some of the major topics that I'd like to cover, but I really would, uh, I'd like to, uh, looking forward to the questions and answers, but I've got some major topics I'd like to cover and show you where your Marine Corps is at 
So since our founding in 1775, Marines have answered our nation's call, faithfully serving the American people and maintaining a standard of military excellence. The 18 NDAA Act allows the Marine Corps to increase to our strength to 186,000. This increase is allowing us to strengthen our, strengthen our capabilities to meet warfighting requirements. Nevertheless, the Marine Corps' operating force continues to be a deployment to dwell of about one to two. This tempo is unsustainable over the long term. Our operational deployment is ideally suited for one to three. In the near term, we have made the decision to fund modernization and recover our readiness to continue to ensure that our Marines are fully trained and equipped for today's conflicts. However, we are not accepting a one-to-do deployment and we'll do everything we can to adjust that. During fiscal year 17, the Marine Corps surpassed all DOD recruiting standards for enlisted and officer recruiting by assessing 99.9% assessing of Tier 1 high school grads. While only 8% of new Marine Corps recruits receive an enlistment bonus, these bonuses incentives are critical to enable us to ship new recruits at the right time to balance throughout the recruit depots and meet our school requirements. To meet future challenges in the current recruiting environment, it's important that we maintain our high standards both for our recruiters and those who volunteer to serve in our Corps. Recruiting quality young individuals translates into high performance, reduced attrition, and improved readiness for the operating forces. As the Marine Corps manages its 186,000 force, we work to retain the very best available Marines capable of fulfilling our leadership and operational needs. This is accomplished through a competitive career des designation process for officers and through evaluation process for the enlisted Marines, both of which are designed to measure, analyze, and compare our Marines' performances and accomplishments. However, there is continuous challenge to keep high-quality Marines in the services, especially in a competitive civilian job market. Incentive pays remain critical to our retention effort, allowing the Marine Corps to fill hard-to-retain positions such as cybersecurity technicians, special operators, and counterintelligence specialists. Similarly, the selective enlistment bonuses allows us to shape our career force by tar targeting critical military occupational specialties and supporting lateral movement of Marines to meet these specialties. We are open to and always assessing new ways to recognize and reward excellence in the Corps to ensure quality remains high. Executing our successful gender integration plan is key to sustaining readiness, as well as ensuring we afford all Marines the opportunity to succeed as valued members of the Corps. The Marine Corps is fully committed to sustaining the most combat effective force by capitalizing on the knowledge, skills, abilities, and demonstrated performance and potential of every Marine. To date, our plan is progressing well. Female Marines are now represented in all previously restricted occupational fields. Performance standards are working to ensure both male and female Marines possess the requisite ability to successfully perform those critical skills of their chosen MOS. We continue to collect data and assess all aspects of our plan through lenses of combat effectiveness, unit readiness, and talent management. Our civilian Marines support the mission and daily functions of the Marine Corps and are integrated part, in, in a part of our total force. Serving alongside our Marines throughout the world in every occupation and at every level, our civilian appropriated funded workforce remains by far the leanest of all services with a ratio of one civilian for every 10 active duty Marines. Approximately 95% of our civilian workforce is outside the national capital region. 69% of veterans who have chosen or continue to serve our nation, and out of those, 18% are disabled veterans. 
Our civilian non-appropriated funded workforce continues to provide vital, vital support to our Marines, Reserve Marines, their families, and the wounded, ill, and injured. So in conclusion, the Marines of our Corps represent the individuals of our nation who have stepped forward and sworn to defend and protect it. Through recruiting, training, education, and retention of men and women of character who take up our challenge to become one of the few and the proud, we will enhance the quality of the Corps and overall combat effectiveness. They are proud of what they do, they are proud of the Eagle Globe and Anchor, and what it represents to our nation. With your support, a vibrant Marine Corps will continue to meet all our nation's goals. Thank you very much, and I look forward to your questions. Again, Lieutenant General Michael Rocco, the Deputy Commandant of the Marine Corps for Manpower and Reserve Affairs. Next on our panel, Rear Admiral William Kelly, the Assistant Commandant of the Coast Guard for Human Resources. Great. Thank you very much, Jared. It's, it's an honor and a privilege to be here with uh, my distinguished colleagues. Uh, so much of what always already has been said are, are the same issues and challenges uh, that we face in the United States Coast Guard. Uh, but I do thank you for the opportunity to be here today to talk to you about the world's best Coast Guard and the men and women who make that up. They are truly our secret sauce. The U.S. Coast Guard uh, consists of roughly 42,000 active duty men and women, approximately 7,000 reservists, and approximately 8,000 dedicated civilian employees. Our ranks are also bolstered by approximately 30,000 volunteers who make up the U.S. Coast Guard Auxiliary. As CG1, my team and I ensure the service has the right people, with, in the right place, at the right time, with the right skills to ensure we meet the needs of the nation. To accomplish this task, Admiral Zunkoff signed our human capital strategy in January of 2016. This was a powerful and important signal to the workforce. While we have always been committed to our people, the human capital strategy provided us a significant impetus for positive action on behalf of our people. Over the past two years, we've been able to address numerous issues of concern for our shipmates. But we know much more must be done so that we are ready to meet the threats we face today and the challenges we will most certainly face tomorrow. We must develop a more flexible and responsive personnel system to ensure we maximize the retention of our dedicated professionals. I like to tell anyone who will listen, including my wife, that I am the Coast Guard's chief retention officer. We're in a battle for talent, folks, not only with our DOD brothers and sisters, but with, the, with unemployment hovering right around 4%, we are in a fight for those talented men and women who have the propensity and are able to serve in our United States military. We know it's a lot more cost effective to retain a lieutenant, an E6, or a GS7 than it is to recruit, train, and develop that same talent. We must do everything we can to, de to develop and retain the talent we invest in to ensure we remain the world's best Coast Guard. That's Rear Admiral William Kelly, the Assistant Commandant of the Coast Guard for Human Resources, at a panel of all the Sea Services personnel chiefs. We'll get into some questions and answers, including the Military Services requests to Congress for reforms to the Defense Officer Personnel Management Act in just a few minutes. This is on DoD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Serbid.
Thanks for listening to federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. And this week's show is a special edition, an abridged version of a panel I moderated at the annual Sea Air Space Conference featuring the personnel chiefs from the Sea Services, Vice Admiral Robert Burke, the Chief of Naval Personnel, Lieutenant General Michael Rocco, the Deputy Commandant of the Marine Corps for Manpower and Reserve Affairs, and Rear Admiral William Kelly, the Assistant Commandant of the Coast Guard for Human Resources. Really for the whole panel, um, Admiral Burke, you mentioned that, that you have been sort of gradually chipping away at the constraints of DOTMA over the past few years. So two-part question, I guess. Um, maybe maybe y'all can talk a little bit about the modifications to DOTMA that have already happened, that you have found the most helpful, that you have made the most use of, and then also whatever proposals you've got in the hopper for the 2019 NDAA cycle. I know you've got to be a little bit careful because the actual text is still working its way through OSD, I think, but, but in terms of broad principles, where do you think you still need the most help from Congress? Yeah, I'll go ahead and start, uh, Jared. So uh, I think the uh, first thing that uh, the legislators would ask us to do is make sure that we're using all the authorities available to us uh, that are out there. And uh, I'll give you just a, a few examples. Um, age limits on uh, uh, officer programs, uh, enlisted programs, for example, using the maximum latitude allowable. We hadn't been in those kind of ebb and flow with uh, the recruiting market, but where it makes sense, uh, we've opened those up to the maximum allowable where there are not some sort of physical or physiological uh, limits. Promotion boards for officers, uh, the Navy and Marine Corps use uh, zones defined by lineal numbers that are assigned on commissioning. Uh, that's unique uh, for the Navy and Marine Corps. Those lineal numbers follow officers for life, but that allows us to define promotion zones down to the individual officer instead of by month, which is uh, something that the other services do, and they have to recreate that as, as promotion uh, year groups uh, mature throughout a career. Uh, because we can do that down to individual officers, we can define zones to a very detailed degree. But also because we've done that, we created this culture where we had three different zones on a particular board. The, the board could see above zone, in zone, below zone. We took those stamps off and uh, gave the, the board's direction to pick purely based on talent, not based on the zones. And told folks to stop playing by those rules. Um, there's you know, still a culture change going on there. Have we completely stopped? No. We're growing out of it, though. We've done a bunch of other things, too. Um, targeted uh, reentry program was one that we did that we, we want some more flexibility on, but that was to uh, give folks that went to the uh, reserve component a fast track back into the active component so we took a look at all the things that we were doing internally to make that a very complicated process. And boy, the Navy knows how to make things complicated. So uh, we were getting in our own way. We, we got rid of as many of those barriers as we could. And uh, two months of the, the painstaking process was due to us. We took that down to about two days. Um, and on the enlisted side, it's a very quick process now. On the officer side, there's some uh, uh, legislatively required processes called scrolling that still take months and months and months. So that's something we would like to, to get some help with because that's, you know, that's too long if you need to bring somebody in uh, into your workforce. 
Just looking in the, in the short term, though, at, uh, at 2019, uh, we would like the ability to have someone uh, be able to take a, uh, a temporary time out to do something unique <coughs> in their career path without detriment to their career. I'm talking an officer now. Uh, so uh, to go off, uh, an, an aviator in the Navy has uh, one of the most compressed career paths. An aviator that goes off to Oxford, or if they go and do something out of the cockpit, out of the production flight line, they're not gonna screen for their next milestone because they didn't contribute to naval aviation. And uh, there are many examples of that happening in recent years. But that's not right for the long term for the Navy. We need to be producing the next generation of highly talented strategists to build our next version of Warplane Orange or whatever it is. Uh, so we should be sending our best and brightest off to those types of opportunities as well. So this proposal would allow an officer to go do something off the golden path, come back in and reset with a new peer group so that they're not punished. It's sort of analogous to what we do with the career intermission program right now, but you're not going to go out to the inactive reserve. The other one is a merit-based thing, which would be a promotion uh, merit reordering is what we, what we titled it. The idea is right now you promote throughout the fiscal year based on when you can pay officers. And you promote based on an order that usually dates back to your order of merit somehow when you were commissioned. Um, this proposal would say, let's let the board reorder you based on how you've been doing lately based on how you've matured throughout your career. So let the board reorder you based on your performance today. So the board will reorder and will promote and pay the top you know, X percent or all of the officers first in the fiscal year and then you know, order the payment and the promotion throughout the fiscal year based on how you're doing now vice how you did 26 years ago when you got commissioned. Or, or whatever the case may be from whatever board. So those are two that we're looking at right now. All right, thank you, sir. Anybody else want to chime in on, on DOPMA or career flexibility? I'll just uh, briefly cover it. I want to, as uh, Admiral Burke talked about, there, there are a number of proposals. I, I, I don't want to, I think it'd be inappropriate to talk specifically about the proposals, but sure. we are looking at DOPMA um, with the help of Congress to, to go ahead and, uh, and adjust that. But I will, three, three areas quickly for the Marine Corps. Uh, when we talk about all the authorities at DOTMA, um, necessity is the mother of invention, and we looked at, uh, because of the necessity, we looked at it, we looked at DOTMA, we actually found that we do have some authorities that were probably underutilized. I'll cover three quickly. Retire, retain. So we can retire folks that are those professionals, cyber, you, you name it, and we can retain them for a number of years. Uh, and we'll break, mentioned that the career intermission program. It's interesting um, when you look at the Marine Corps, inside the Marine Corps, we only have, and we've only had the program for about two years, we only have 11 Marines um, enrolled in the career into mission program. So, you know, we look at that. It is the ability to go out and do something different with no penalty and, and come back in. Um, and we're going to do a better job advertising that, but the folks uh, inside the Marine Corps, um, it's just not a, a vastly overutilized program. Um, but we hope we'll, we'll gain a little more traction. The other thing we've used uh, to our to the benefit of both the active reserve and the use of reservists. 
Uh, we continue to use the reservists both as units and as individuals to help us fill those niches that uh, as, as Marines grow on, move on, grow on, gap, that we ability to cover those gaps that we're using that more. So, you know, we look forward to uh, working with Congress on, on DOTMA reform. Uh, but right now, we're, uh, I think we're in a very good dialogue with them and with the services to go ahead and meet the needs of this force that is going to be much more technically uh, adroit as we, as we face the nation's next battles. Thank you. That's Lieutenant General Michael Rocco, the Deputy Commandant of the Marine Corps for Manpower and Reserve Affairs. Vice Admiral Robert Burke, the Chief of Naval Personnel, was the voice you heard just before him. Part of a panel I moderated with the Sea Service Personnel Chiefs at this year's Sea Air Space Conference in National Harbor, Maryland. A few more minutes with them after one last break on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbio. Find out what happened while you were sleeping. Get Federal News Radio's daily headlines. Go to federalnewsradio.com, search alerts. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. And again, on this week's show, we're featuring a condensed version of a panel I moderated at the Sea Air Space Conference featuring the Sea Service's personnel chiefs. Our main speakers in this segment are Vice Admiral Robert Burke, the Chief of Naval Personnel, and Lieutenant General Michael Rocco, the Deputy Commandant of the Marine Corps for Manpower and Reserve Affairs. One more question for me here before we go to audience questions. Following up on some of the comments we heard before the break about making the military personnel system more flexible, especially for officers. And I'm sorry, before we go out to you guys, I, I just want to ask one quick follow-up on this, and it gets to the point that you just made on, on SIP. I mean, what happens if you create all these more flexible, non-traditional career paths and no one goes down them. And really two questions on that. I mean, I, I can imagine being in a position where, where someone's saying to themselves, look, I don't care exactly what precepts you give the board to, to follow here. There's always going to be some institutional bias among those board members that says, this is the Navy or Coast Guard or Marine Corps I grew up in, and this is what a, what a traditional career path looks like, and I'm going to favor someone with, that has operational experience while you are taking your you know, your intermission. And I think we've seen that a little bit with SIP, right? I mean, the, the numbers, not just in the Marine Corps, are also have, they've also been low in the Navy. So, well, lower, they, they've been under the quotas, let, let's put it that way. And, and feel free to push back yeah. on any of No, that. well, you know, to your point, so there are a couple of things. When we talk about the career intermission program, we're talking about going out uh, something non-traditional and, uh, and then coming back in, and, that, and those, those numbers are pretty low. But we have a number of uh, programs and over 300 that go out and do, go up to Naval Postgraduate School, get their degrees in something other than, in, in anything, in fact, many of them end up working in manpower uh, and they become analysts and whatnot. And, and we actually look at those numbers very closely and they're, to your point, those promotion rates are as good, if not better. Uh, in the past, they haven't been that good because we picked the wrong people for the wrong reasons at the wrong time. Mm. Uh, we do a much better job now of looking at the population and going, well, this is probably not best to, to, in your career to be doing this at this time, or the impact of the payback tour, to, to Admiral Burke's point about that timing, you know, we just can't squeeze it all in. So when, we, when you go into the program, we'll not only look at where you're going, but then the payback tour to ensure that you don't commit professional um, suicide by going into a program like that, so mm. you won't be picked for it. So we spend a lot more time looking at the input, so the output is, uh, is ruined. Because at the end of the day, we can quote anything we want, but the folks know, the young guys and gals who are going to join, they know if they go down this road, 
if they go to a, 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 a education program that is not going to mean that they will advance in, the, in, in their profession, then they're not going to do that. We can do all the advertising in the world, but the Marines are pretty smart, the sales are pretty smart, the Coast Guard are pretty smart, and they know what the numbers are. So we look at that, we look at the input, and we watch it very closely to ensure that we're getting the right person at the right time to meet the requirement, most importantly, to make sure that it doesn't hurt their career. Yeah, I got I do have to challenge you on the Please. statement about the numbers. We've had 162, I think it is. It's, it's just over 160 uh, folks used uh, the career intermission program in the Navy. Uh, you know, in the initial years, it was restricted to about 20 people per year. Uh, FY17 National Defense Authorization Act took the caps on the number of people that could apply for it in 2017. That's when we started getting massive levels of participation. It also took off the restrictions on minimum service requirement, and that's when our numbers went way up. So 162 people in the program right now. We had a lot, we had 89 go all the way through it and come back in on active duty, 14 of whom went through subsequent officer promotion boards or enlisted promotions. You had a second point to your question about the, oh, the uh, board precepts. Right. I think the uh, I, I think there is a validity to that. There's a skepticism about a new program. Will it work? Will it? Will I be part of the the experimental data here and, and uh, be sacrificed? One, you have to put really careful mechanisms in place. Career intermission program is one that had uh, very that has very good uh, protection mechanisms in with the the uh, reset of the lineal numbers for the officers and the way the precepts are structured. So that's part of it, and that's our job to convince sailors uh, and soldiers, airmen, Marines, that, that we've done that. Uh, this, the second part is, you know, the proof will be in the pudding. Uh, if you don't believe it, watch and evaluate for yourself. They should be their own judge, see how it pans out. I, I think if we're doing our job right, we should have those safeguards built in and make sure that they're not used as part of the experiment. All right, fair enough. Um, thanks for your patience, guys. Sorry to keep you standing. Let's go over here first. You were at the mic first. Good afternoon, Lieutenant Bianca Lovedall. I'm a student at the Naval Postgraduate School. My question is, uh, in a time when the space domain is a critical area for all um, services, how is the Navy and Marine Corps strategically billeting or creating billets for personnel who are uh, trained in space systems and operations? So the Marine Corps does have billets for space officers. We, are, we have created under the Deputy Commandant for Information uh, who is basically brought in together, so it's another three-star position. It's brought together uh, Intel, uh, C4I, and Cyber. We've, uh, we've also enforced 2025, we've, we've created the MIG, which is the MEF Information Group, which is basically the headquarters group, but it's basically the combined warfighting aspect, headquarters aspect to a MEF, which is our warfighting uh, war unit. We've created those billets, space billets, at the MEFs, and, and, and it's not, again, you're not going to see uh, Marines behind uh, a laptop at the MEF directing satellites. What it really is is, is a position that liaises back to space, and it's obviously the uh, executive agent for that is the Air Force. But it gives the MEF commander the ability to tap into assets and be aware of assets that he has the ability to tap into. And if uh, designated, he can then utilize in his plan both so space, cyber, um, and some of the uh, and information operations. It's all combined in, the, in, that, in that MEF information group. So that's Force 2025. That's something new. We just started it, and we're just now building those uh, MEF information groups uh, for all three MEFs uh, positioned around the world. Yeah, for the uh, Navy, it's a very similar approach. I think we're less mature than the Marine Corps right now. We, we are still in the uh, 
formative stages. Uh, we've, we've been working this for uh, just under a year. What we have right now is an ad hoc organization of officers with a combination of uh, subspecialty codes and, uh, and uh, experience that folks that have been in billets like um, uh, the general described uh, at uh, maritime operating centers, working those liaison jobs, and uh, they're uh, in the uh, you know, information professional core or uh, NAV OCEANO uh, jobs, or they've worked in the, in the joint jobs and acquired those skills. So we are looking at various options from either formalizing uh, uh, a subspecialty and making it part of the information warfare community, or even perhaps a, a separate designator, then should it be a lateral in uh, at a certain point. Uh, but what, what we do want to be able to do is compete uh, within the space community for uh, some of the, the leadership positions. We want to have, uh, space is going to be important to, uh, you know, naval warfare, and we want to be able to uh, have some seats at the table to make sure that we're able to to conduct that, that element of warfare and uh, it, you know, influence the positioning of satellites to help us do that. So uh, we need to build the officers with those right skill sets. The, the curriculum and that coming from PG school, I think you've seen some of it. It's pretty good. Uh, we're doing well uh, with that and with uh, cyber and, and, and other areas. I'm less concerned about that than getting the developmental steps in and getting the experiential tours in the right place and then making sure that officers are in incentivized to move there and stay there. So uh, whether it becomes kind of a seashore rotation thing or something like we do with financial management where it's a little bit uh, uh, less structured uh, remains to be seen. But we're looking at all those uh, options right now. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks. Yes, sir. Admiral Burke, you talked about um, lateral entry and the need to do it in the officer corps and certain specialties. Um, what about the enlisted workforce? There's been some talk, you know, over the last few years about opening up certain specialties to lateral conversion. I mean, it's not unheard of to the military. A lot of World War II growth happened through lateral entry, but are there roadblocks today, and where do you see on the enlisted side lateral entry having a role, if at all? I'll take the second part of the question first. Uh, really no uh, significant roadblocks to doing that. Should, should we need to do that on the enlisted side? The, uh, we have the authorities to do that quickly. Uh, I don't uh, see a large need to do that, though. Uh, one of the challenges that, you know, early on we'd been looking at was, you know, in general there was this example being used really by folks outside the service that cyber, for example, was going to be the example of lateral entry for each of the services. Each of the services has, I think, uh, and I would not say that we are done or nor have we met that challenge because I think there are elements of the cyber challenge we, we, we are still uh, working on in the officer side in particular. But on the enlisted side, we thought we were going to need that, but uh, we recently just uh, met one of the challenges. We've done a lot of that with, with respect to repurposing our, uh, 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 you know, our traditional uh, information uh, professional folks on the defensive side and then our 
CTs on the offensive side, and then, and then uh, to look for that technological uh, uh, supervisor thing, we created a, a warrant officer program. But the commission warrant officer program and the Navy and the authorities start at CWO2, which has you, you know, your, your eligibility for that is fairly senior folks. And, and then you don't have them around for very long because of the window of eligibility. So we weren't having many takers and the takers we were getting, we couldn't keep for very long. So we looked when you, you know, when you need a new idea, read an old book kind of thing. So we went back to the W-1s, which is not commission. We just formed this W-1 program for our cyber warrants, which opens it up to E-5s. So our CTs, E-5s now are eligible. They're young. It's a larger pool of folks. They're going to be available as a W-1, now eligible to go play to become W-2s, a commission warrant officer and for a lot longer time to grow into those senior supervisory roles uh, and, and be around for a lot longer. So uh, we just uh, uh, brought that program online a, a little less than a month ago, in fact. So we have high hopes for that one. That's an example where we use existing authorities to solve our own issue. Uh, on the officer side, um, the <coughs> operators uh, pretty good there, as I said, the defensive operators, the offensive operators, the designers though, the people that are, you know, building the software to go out, the engineers. Um, uh, we got some legislative authority a couple years ago as a pilot program that allowed us to give three years time in, in grade credit for an officer to go do some lateral hiring for these folks. So that's, that brings them in in the Navy as a Lieutenant JG, which, uh, you know, pay, pay grade for a Lieutenant JG with three years time and grade is uh, about $50,000, give or take. Um, that's not competitive with, with what those guys are being paid on the outside. Um, there's a, an equivalent civilian cyber uh, program uh, that uh, is available for government service cyber uh, civilians doing the same job that is paying still not close to the competitive market in say Silicon Valley but the mission is a draw people want to do this because service to the nation is important to them so we don't have to pay dollar for dollar but we do sort of have to be in the ballpark <laughs> maybe the right number of digits, for example. And uh, the, the government civilian uh, program is, playing, is paying closer to 100,000. So, you know, a little more time and grade credit um, would, uh, and being able to lateral enter as an officer for those kind of engineering, software engineering skills would be the, the right help that we would be seeking eventually. Again, Vice Admiral Robert Burke, the Chief of Naval Personnel, speaking on a panel the Navy League asked me to moderate at their annual Sea Air Space Conference. Our program today was a condensed version of that discussion, edited to fit within our time constraints on the radio. We'll also post a link to the video of the entire 75-minute discussion at federalnewsradio.com slash on DOD. Also, if you haven't already, please sign up for our podcast. You can find it on Podcast One or Apple Podcasts. That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. 
I'm Jared Serbu. So long. You've been listening to On DOD with Federal News Radio DOD reporter Jared Serbu. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. On DOD, only on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com.